eyes for the last several weeks over the confirmation process of a new justice to the Supreme Court. I know that you all are familiar with this. You'd have to almost be living under a rock someplace to not have heard coverage about this. But I know that you all are familiar with it because I've heard you all talking about the, the news coverage of this confirmation process for Brett Kavanaugh to be an associate justice on the Supreme Court. Um, without going into too much detail, we, and you all know the details anyway, but we just point out that this nominee, almost at the point where he was about to be confirmed by the Senate, uh, he was accused of certain misconduct, we'll just put it that way, that supposedly happened way back when he was in high school, 35 or 36 years ago. His accuser could not remember a lot of the key details and literally no evidence whatsoever was presented to prove the accusations made against the man. And so after a whole lot of drama, uh, just yesterday he was uh, sworn in as a new justice on the Supreme Court. Well, all of that got me to thinking about evidence, and specifically about the evidence concerning Jesus Christ as the resurrected Savior and I thought we would just review uh, the evidence that we have, the very solid evidence that we have, that convinces us that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That he claimed to be the only begotten Son of God. And that the evidence is certainly overpoweringly convincing that he is, in fact, that. We want to talk about, specifically, the, the people who were with him. The people who spent time with him, who were close with him and especially those who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we want to talk about eyewitness testimony. What do you want in an eyewitness? And what we hope to demonstrate, of course, is that the eyewitnesses of Jesus fit that bill perfectly, that they are exactly the kind of witnesses that you'd want if you were trying to prove a case. So that's what our study will be tonight. We stop for just a minute to thank you all for being here. It's been a good day, a beautiful day in Middle Tennessee, and what a great privilege it is to come together again on Sunday evening to join together for a period of worship, praise God, sing songs, pray, study. It's just it's just a good opportunity, and, and you are an encouragement to us in that you take advantage of such opportunities. Thanks for being here tonight with a special word of thanks to all who are visiting with us, and we hope you'll come back every time you have a chance. Let's talk about eyewitnesses. So if you wanted to prove a case, what kind of characteristics or qualities would you want in an eyewitness? Well, first of all, you would want to have witnesses that have verifiable honesty, that they are honest above and beyond question, that no one could doubt when they tell their story, no one ha would have any reason to doubt that they were telling exactly what they saw, what they knew. In regards to this Supreme Court nominee, the one who accused him, uh, uh, perhaps there was at least this speculation that this particular individual was party to a group of people who had an agenda. They had an agenda to, de to defeat this nominee. They had, an, uh, they had a political agenda to accomplish certain ends. We don't have to go into that. But there was a lot of questions about with that sort of a, an agenda in mind, would this person be telling the truth? They, there would be reason to lie. 
There would be reason to misrepresent. There would be reason to prevaricate because you want to accomplish a political agenda. So there was a lot of suspected bad motives on the part of the accuser of this Supreme Court nominee. But I want to tell you, concerning the witnesses of Jesus Christ, there's no reason to question their veracity at all. They, they, they had no reason to be lying. Uh, they were telling what they legitimately believed, and, and the proof of it is that they were willing to continue to tell that even when they were being persecuted. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18, the Jewish council called them. Now, you've got to pay attention to the Jewish council here. Know who these guys are. These are the very men who were instrumental in causing Jesus' crucifixion. These are the ones who put the hot pressure on Pilate and insisted that he crucify Jesus. These are powerful men. They can cause you a lot of trouble. So this Jewish council called the apostles, Peter and John, and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Would it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than to God, judge ye? For we cannot but speak the things which knows. We have seen and heard. And so to these very powerful men, they said, we have no option. All we can do is tell what we saw, what we heard. And so under real threat, they continued to tell the story. Knowing that it was going to probably cause them a whole lot of grief, they continued to tell the story. In the very next chapter of Acts, chapter 5, verse 28, the council calls them again, saying, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? The apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree, and we are his witnesses of these things. We're telling you things that we personally witnessed. And so, as that chapter winds up, at verse 40, when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go, and they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Now, right there is the proof of their honesty. The absolute, undoubted honesty of these men is seen in the fact that even when under threat, and notice the persecution, now physical persecution had begun, they were beaten and threatened, and yet they said, we're going to keep talking about it. They ceased not. It didn't stop them. Why would they keep telling that story if it wasn't true? Why would they insist on carrying out that message if they knew it was a lie at its very root? There would be no reason for them to continue, right? But the fact that they did continue, I think, is proof positive that they were honestly telling what they had seen, what they had heard. Paul said about himself in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning verse 8, We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. We also believe, and therefore speak. Notice, we believe, and therefore speak. That's going through all this persecution. That's what we're going through it for, he said, because we believe it. We believe and therefore speak. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Paul said, I've lost everything for his sake, and I'm not sorry. And I'd do it again. It doesn't mean anything. Those things don't mean anything to me. I want to be faithful to the Lord. And so, uh, concerning 
their very basic honesty, you'd have to say they certainly passed that test, right? These fellows were telling what they honestly believed to be true. If, the, if they thought it was a lie, they would have quit very early on. And they never quit. And most of them were willing to die for the cause. i tell you what else you'd want in an eyewitness. You'd want an eyewitness who had first-hand knowledge of the things that supposedly happened. In other words, in a, in a court of law, you, what you do not want is you do not want somebody just conveying hearsay evidence. Well, he told her and she told him and he, and at about ten, ten steps down the process, they told me. And I'm telling you what I heard. But I, I wasn't there. I, I was not there. I don't have any first-hand knowledge of what happened. But somebody told me that they heard that somebody said that somebody said that somebody said and that's what it was. Well, that's hearsay, right? And you don't want hearsay when you're trying to prove a case. Um, you want someone who has first-hand knowledge. And so in regards to these accusations that were made against Judge Kavanaugh, there were a lot of questions. Was there ever such a party? Where was it? Who was there? Was the accused even there? And there was a lot of doubt about that. There was a great lacking in people who had first-hand knowledge of the alleged events. What about the apostles, though? What about those who were giving testimony about Jesus? Well, they had first-hand knowledge. Go back to the text that Travis read earlier in our service from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Notice Peter says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I really think that Peter was aware of the fact that they could be thus accused. Oh, Peter, man, Peter, come on. How gullible could you possibly be, Peter? Someone, someone dreamed up this crazy story about Jesus and about his resurrection, and you were silly enough to believe it. How could you be so gullible? Well, come on, man. I think Peter, by inspiration, was aware that that accusation might be laid down against them. And so Peter says that's not the case. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter says, I'm not a second-hand witness. I am not passing along hearsay evidence when I tell you what I'm telling you. It's not something someone passed on to me, a fable, a, a folklore, a, a, some kind of a myth. I'm telling you what I saw with my own eyes. I was an eyewitness of his majesty. And then he goes on to describe a particular instance in the life of Jesus. For, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice came from heaven, uh, and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Notice, he describes specifically the transfiguration. I think. That's what he's talking about. He says, I was there. I'm not telling you what someone told me. I'm telling you, I was there. I, I saw it with my own eyes. Uh, we heard it. We were with him in the Holy Mount. And so Peter says, no, this is not hearsay that I'm describing to you. I'm telling you what I saw myself. John says this, almost the same thing exactly in 1 John chapter 1, beginning verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. And John, so John's saying the same thing, right? 
not hearsay, not passing along a story that someone told us, telling you what we saw ourselves. So certainly, uh, when it comes to those who were reporting to us about Jesus, they certainly have that quality, right? They were firsthand uh, eyewitnesses. They had firsthand knowledge. I tell you, you want corroborating testimony. Well, we've heard this word a lot, haven't we? I mean, I don't know how. I I don't know the last time I ever heard that word until this came up. With and I've I've heard it. I don't know how many hundreds of times. Corroborating evidence. Corroborating testimony. Uh, how would we put that in our own words? Well, basically, what we would say is, you need somebody to back up your story, right? Isn't, isn't that what you say? So if you tell me something, and I say, oh man, that's hard to believe. And, and so, so Arthur tells me something. I said, I don't know, Arthur. That's pretty hard to believe. Uh, but then Josh speaks up and says, it's right. I'm telling you it's right because I was there too, right? So, so Josh would be corroborating what Arthur said, right? Basically, the point here is that when you're trying to con- make a convincing account, the more witnesses you have, the better. Uh, two is good. Two is way better than one. Arthur's story might be hard to believe, but when Josh chimes in and says, I was there too, oh, that makes it a whole lot easier to believe. So two is a lot better than one. Ten's a lot better than two, right? How many eyewitnesses we've got of Jesus? Specifically, how many eyewitnesses of the resurrection we've got? Well, we know, don't we? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul enumerates the eyewitnesses. He said, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once. So we don't just have a handful of witnesses, not one or two or ten. Over five hundred eyewitnesses. At one time, Jesus was seen by above five hundred brethren at once. And I think it's really interesting... Paul goes on to say, of whom the greater part remain to this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then also of, the, uh, of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. So, he talks about these 500 brethren, and he said most of those folks are still... Why would he mention that? Well, the reason why he would mention that is basically saying, go ask them yourself. If, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, go ask them yourself. There's a few have, have died, but most of those 500 witnesses of the resurrected Savior are still alive, and you can go question them if you want. Go ask them yourself. See if it's not so. And so, when it comes to eyewitness testimony, there's certainly a lot of corroboration. There's that word again. With Christ well corroborated uh, concerning the testimony of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. Well, obviously, when it comes to eyewitnesses, you want a consistency. Uh, in other words, uh, you, you want multiple witnesses, that's really good, but your witnesses have to all be in agreement, telling the same story. I know that you, thinking back over these last week or two, in regards to the accusations made against Judge Kavanaugh, there were no corroborating witnesses, and in fact, the story that some other people were telling directly contradicted the story that the accuser was telling. And so we got a big problem here. we got this accuser saying one thing. Nobody will back up what she's saying. 
And in fact, there are some people who are saying the opposite of what she's saying. Well, that destroys a case, doesn't it? Of course it does. Uh, that wasn't the case with the apostle of Jesus Christ. They all told unfalteringly the same story about Jesus from start to finish. They told the same story about Jesus. There was no changing. There was no contradiction between them. They all were on target and always said the same thing over not just a few days, but over decades those witnesses of Jesus were testifying to what they told them. They always told the same story and it never varied. There was certainly a consistency in the accounts. You might contrast this uh, with what happened when Jesus was on trial, when his enemies were trying to convict him so that they could crucify him. In Mark chapter 14, it says, The chief priests and all the council sought for witnesses against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For notice, many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. And so here Mark is pointing out that those who were accusing Jesus were obviously lying. And, and their lying was exposed by virtue of the fact that they gave testimony, but they contradicted each other, right? You can't prove a case with contradictory evidence, and so you want consistency in the accounts. And in regards to those who testified about Jesus, they were consistent. Those who accused Jesus were inconsistent. But those who were telling the story, who were reporting eyewitness uh, accounts of what had happened, they were always consistent and there was no contradiction between them. Finally, when you're thinking about eyewitness testimony, what you, what you really want in an eyewitness is transparency. In other words, they, you, you can see right through them. They're not, they're, they're not trying to cover up anything. They're not trying to hide anything. Uh, they're wide open. What do you want to know? Ask any question you want to ask. I'll give you all the answers I've got. Make one more reference to the, to the, it wasn't even a trial, right? The, into the hearings about this Supreme Court nominee. The person who accused him wouldn't turn over certain key pieces of evidence. In other words, supposedly this accuser had taken a lie detector test. But they wouldn't, they, they said she, she passed the lie detector test, but they wouldn't give the results. They wouldn't, they wouldn't give the, the, the report. Uh, uh, supposedly she'd been in counseling and had told her counselor some while back that these things had happened, but they wouldn't produce the notes of the counselor who had supposedly counseled her to deal with the issues that she had faced. And so, why wouldn't you want to do that? I mean, if you're telling the truth and you really are honest, why wouldn't you just, sure, here's the lie detector test. Here's the lie detector test I took and look how I passed it. Here's the notes that my counselor made while I was under counsel. And notice, it confirms what I'm saying now. And this you know, from several years. They wouldn't do that sort of thing. Well, man, that raises red flags, doesn't it? There's, a, there's an obvious lack of transparency in a case like that. And that really hurts your case, right? If you're not totally forthcoming, if you won't just answer any question, uh, hold nothing back, that really damages your, your credibility. That damages your case. What about these men who were the eyewitnesses of Jesus? 
totally transparent. They didn't hold back anything. In John chapter 21, John said, There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they should be written, every one I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. He said, man, we've got all kinds of things we could tell you about Jesus. But he goes on to explain, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So John says, we've got tons of information. We, we can't even write it all down. We've written, but we've written down a significant amount of information about Jesus, enough so that if you are really interested, you can be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Luke mentioned in, Luke, uh, in Acts chapter 1, remember now, remember Luke, Luke wasn't an apostle, right? And in fact, Luke was not an eyewitness of Jesus. But Luke was in close company with those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. Notice what he said. The former treatise, he's talking about the gospel, what we call the gospel of Luke. So he basically said, the book of Luke, he says, that former treatise I have made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. Notice, it was all that Jesus began to do, both do and teach. We're not holding back anything. Oh, you know, there was that really dark period in Jesus' life. There was, there was about three years there when he was kind of off the deep end. But we're not talking about that. We're just talking about the good... That's not what he said. <laughs> they weren't hiding anything from the public about Jesus. They weren't holding back information. And what do you want to know? We are wide open. Ask us whatever you want to ask. We'll give you all the information you need to make an informed decision that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, look at that. It's not really too difficult. And we're not trained lawyers, are we? But just as common sense people, we know that if you want to try to prove something, you need honest people who have first-hand information who ha and there's more than one. There's several. There's a lot. So honest people with first-hand knowledge and a lot of them who are all telling the same thing and are holding back nothing. We haven't been to law school, have we? But that's just common sense. You want to prove a case, that's, that will prove a case. Well, what is the case that we're considering? We're considering Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God and resurrected Savior of the world. Is it proved? Man, it is proved. It is, it is totally proved. You know, in, in regards to that uh, uh, Supreme Court uh, confirmation process, finally, after all the drama, the senators had to reject what the accuser was saying about the appointee. Uh, they had to say, well, there is no corroborating evidence and so forth and so on. And so they finally confirmed him, on a closed vote, by the way, but they finally confirmed him to the Supreme Court because the accuser didn't pass these tests. But in regards to the decision we have to make, which, by the way, is leagues more important than the decision they were making in Washington last week, concerning the decision we have to make, is Jesus real? Is he really the resurrected Son of God? The evidence is overpoweringly positive. And if we, are, if we are thinking right at all, we will accept that testimony as being true. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Have you obeyed him? Have you submitted to him? Have you become his disciple? That's our question as we bring the lesson to a close.
upon knowing about Jesus, upon hearing the truth, will you believe it? Repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sin. We hope you make that decision. We're ready to assist you. If you need more study, say so. We'd be glad to study with you. If you're a Christian already and you need the prayers of the saints in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song.